quick four-pack. Vladlen Tatarsky, Evan Gershkovich, Nikolai Patrushev and Guns. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So I was travelling this past week, thanks again to the Fletcher School at Tufts for the award for my book Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, which they were kind enough to describe as the best book on US-Russian relations of the year, and then also to the Southern Conference on Slavic Studies down in northern Florida, who were kind enough to invite me to ramble on after their banquet about my views of quite where we can place Russia's political system. But anyway, given that I'm also going to be travelling the current coming weekend, I wanted to record a short podcast, just so I I don't leave my, my poor listeners in limbo. And what I'm going to do is briefly tackle four particular stories of the moment, three of which are very much anchored around particular individuals, and one a, a report that, that's just come out. So, first of all, Vladlen Tatarsky, whose real name was, of course, Maxim Fomin. He was one of the so-called mill bloggers, the nationalist uh, armchair commentators, though he was rather more than just an armchair commentator. Though in this case he has acquired a particular reputation for having been blown up in St. Petersburg a couple of days back. Now, this is still... uh, frankly, an an, an evolving story. There is a woman, Daria Trepova, who has been accused of being the uh, person who presented uh, a bust in which was hidden the explosives that killed him and injured 16 other people. Though, on the other hand, there are others who say this is just a fit-up, that she's a convenient uh, patsy. After all, she has been involved with the Alexei Navalny movement and therefore it gave the chance for the authorities to to blame them in some ways. Um, Oh and by the way a a hat tip to Ido Vok of the New Statesman for noticing the the perhaps unfortunate uh, tweet that came from the spectator after I had uh, written a sort of a quick quick response piece for their coffeehouse blog and the tweet perhaps slightly unfortunately led with the title of the article and then gave my name so it read who is behind the murder of Putin's propagandist, Mark Galliotti? But no, don't worry, I have an alibi. Anyway, what I really want to talk about is not you know, who, who, who killed this deeply disagreeable man, but in some ways what his career trajectory demonstrates, but also some of the implications. Who is this guy? This is actually, we must start with, a Ukrainian. A Ukrainian citizen, albeit a Russian-speaking one from the east who was in prison as a bank robber 
when essentially the state fell apart, 2014, he escaped from prison, made his way to the Donbass, where he joined the Vostok Battalion, which was an interesting force because it was initially introduced by the Russians as an attempt, once they decided to basically sort of try and more or less uh, harness the various uh, autonomous and separatist-seeking militias in the region, so they raised this force initially of people from the North Caucasus, Russian, sorry, uh, Chechens and others. And they sent it into Donetsk, it took over the local administration building, but very quickly it was Ukrainianized. The Chechens and others went home and various Ukrainian volunteers uh, took it over, including, as was then, Maxim Formin. And from that point he started as a fighter he didn't rise particularly high in the sort of command sense but he rose because he basically realized that there was perhaps a safer and more lucrative track to instead becoming a commentator he's written several books on the war not i've, I've not read any of them i should say but but those who have suggest that they're not exactly works of uh, literature and he became, again, as I say, one of these prominent social media mill bloggers who had more than half a million subscribers to his Telegram channel. And to a large extent, he put out the usual kind of bilious nonsense precisely about how this is a just war and the Ukrainians are all neo-Nazis and the like, which is funny because he himself actually is quite closely linked to some of the more disreputable and, well, one could even say neo-Nazi units on the Russian side, particularly one called Rusic, which which really is um, you know, hard to describe as anything other than a fascist militia. And he raised money for Rusic as well as Vostok and others. So, you know, he was definitely this strand of opinion, the so-called turbo patriots, who not only supportive of the war, but increasingly impatient with the authorities because they feel they're not prosecuting it with sufficient violence, vim and vigour. And in that respect, clearly, he's very much affiliated with Evgeny Prigozhin of Wagner in fame. And it seems to be, in fact, he was supported, possibly financially, but certainly in other ways, by Prigozhin. And in return, he gave a platform for Prigozhin's views. He gave a lengthy interview with Prigozhin, which gave him a chance to bewail his usual thing about the shortage of ammunition being provided to Wagner. He was then identified actually as being in Bakhmut with Prigozhin on a quote-unquote fact-finding mission. And it is quite interesting that the cafe in which this attack took place, while he was addressing a meeting of the so-called Cyberfront Z, which is again a collection of social media types very supportive of the war, well, this cafe was owned by Prigozhin's Concord Group until 2020, when it was given essentially as a gift to its current owner, but in return for past and future favours, which tend to include using the cafe as a place to host these kind of nationalist blowhards. Now, as I say, I don't know who's behind it. it you know, it, it could be Trepova. She could have just simply been a dupe. There's some people who are saying actually the explosive wasn't, as is claimed, in the bust, but in the podium. And, of course, it's an opportunity for everyone to point the finger at who they would usually point the finger at. So we have the Russians saying, oh, it's clearly Ukrainians or Ukrainian sympathizers. We have the Ukrainians saying, ah, oh, no, this is just in the uh, evocative words of Mikhailo Podolyak, you know, spiders in the, in the bottle devouring each other. 
and others who are suggesting it's actually rivalries within the Turbo Patriot movement, whether it's over prominence and precedence or whether it's over money. Remember, Tatarsky, as, as he became known, and it's interesting, Vladlen Tatarsky, I mean, I don't know if it may just simply be that he liked the name, but Vladlen was one of these names that emerged after the revolution, in this whole period, the 1917 revolution, that is, in this whole period of social and cultural foment, in which people were trying to break away from traditional ways. And Vladlen is pre precisely drawn from Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, um, so it was one of these sort of fake new names. So whether he actually consciously was going back to Soviet times, and particularly maximalist Soviet times, or not, I don't know. But I just mention that. Anyway, to return to my thread, while it's banal to suggest that it's always about follow the money, sometimes it is indeed about follow the money. I mean, I can't help but think back to the 1990s when you had a whole series of killings, including by bombs, within the Afghan soldiers, veterans movement, which frankly was simply because the SVA, the main uh, Afghan veteran movement, had really become a vessel for smuggling as much as anything else. In that respect, much like the Orthodox Church, but we won't talk about that at this point. And these were rivalries over access to the profits to be made. So, you know, it could well be that, in fact, this is simply about fundraising for the war, the opportunities for embezzlement and favouritism within. Who knows? But what I think is worth talking about is actually the, the context, the wider context of the fact that we, we have seen more and more of these various types of attacks. Tatarsky's killing, just like the killing of Daria Dugina, the daughter of nationalist philosopher of high profile, but I should stress very, very little actual influence, Alexander Dugin. Well, add those to a wider range of much smaller scale or lower profile attacks. We've had all kinds of arson attacks on Voyenkomati, the military draft boards, as well as some attacks on railways. We've had individual strikes against people involved in the, the war effort, again, particularly focusing on staff from military commissariats, the, the, the draft boards, you know, who naturally become a focus for resentment because they're also the people involved in mobilising reservists and the like. Put all that together, and it raises two interesting points, in my opinion. First of all, you know, they, this may well be a sign of growing real tension within the country. Now, again... I would stress, I don't think there's any evidence of any kind of organised resistance to Putinism as such. I, I, I mean, there are these groups which, which declare themselves in existence and somehow. But nonetheless, I, I really haven't seen any solid evidence of that. Instead, I think, and this may actually be even more scary for the authorities, I think it's more a rising tide of generalised resistance. And the interesting thing is this really goes back to a Russian tradition. There is this, frankly, rather insulting cliché of the Russians as bovinely accepting whatever fate and malign authorities throw at them. In fact, in my opinion, actually, the, the history demonstrates a very strong tradition of resistance. But again, tending to be small-scale and low-level. You know, if one looks back to Tsarist times, the Red Rooster, arson attacks as on landlords, properties and the like. It was a very, very common, not quite daily, but, but weekly event, as were local peasant risings. 
Then if one looks later in the sort of the early industrialization pre-revolutionary, as well as the sort of sometimes strikes and the like, there was a constant litany of sabotage attacks, sometimes almost Luddite, but more often political or political economic. And even if one goes into Soviet times, yes, the organs of the state were immensely powerful and ruthless and often, frankly, quite effective. And therefore, they are able to often, or usually, prevent any kind of confluence of different disgruntled individuals. But nonetheless, on an individual level, you do have constantly, you know, small-scale attacks, small-scale incidents, whether it's a, you know, a pamphlet denouncing the activities of the, the Communist Party here, whether it's a case of localised dissent there, or whether it is something more violent. I mean, actually, this is one of the still, I think, untold stories, which is precisely about the Russians' capacity and willingness to carry out small-scale individual acts of resistance and sometimes violent resistance against the state. And I think this is what we may be seeing now. So it's still very isolated. This country, look, of 146 million. So, of course, most people are not doing so. But to a level that I don't think we've seen before for a long time, this is what we see happening in Russia today. And the second broad point is this does raise interesting questions about the capacities of the internal security forces. It's quite striking if one looks at nationalist social media, Russian nationalist social media. There is a pretty strong critique at the moment uh, relating to Tatarsky's death because the authorities said, oh, yes, yes, we'd, we'd heard suggestions that there were going to be an attack, which, of course, leaves them open to the, well, then what the hell did you do about it? Generally speaking, there is this question of where is the FSB? Now, some people are actually suggesting that the FSB might have been behind this killing. I'm not entirely convinced. I can't help feeling that if they were going to do something, they would do something that doesn't reflect so badly on themselves. But who knows? I mean, the, it is entirely possible for, for spooks to be morons as well. But nonetheless, it also it does leave them increasingly open to a sense that they are just not able to do their job. Or perhaps even more dangerous, that they're not choosing to do their job when it comes to the Turbo Patriots. Remember, this is a movement which is already at once embedded within the security apparatus, because many of the people who follow this kind of strands of thought wear uniforms and therefore by extension carry guns, but at the same time essentially critical of the hierarchy, you know, the bosses of the security apparatus and the political system which they're supporting. So I think it's particularly dangerous if it begins to become, a, there begins to emerge a sense amongst the turbo patriots that the FSB is either killing them or just letting them be killed. Because that will, I think, further reduce their own inhibitions about regarding this state as not just malign, but their enemy. And this notion that it's, it is patriotic to be anti-Putin could well be one of the really dangerous political movements to emerge undercover in the next few months and maybe years. So that's just a quick take on the Tatarsky killing, and I may well return to it if, as and when, we actually know more about it. The second individual case I want to talk about is about Evan Gershkovitz, who, a journalist of the Moscow Times and then AP, and then most recently of the Wall Street Journal, who was off going and doing journalism in Yekaterinburg, when he was arrested and has been accused of being a spy. 
Now, look, first of all, I think this is a pretty obvious case of hostage-taking. At the moment, the Russians are aware that they have at least three, maybe more, of their foreign intelligence officers who are currently uh, imprisoned elsewhere, two in Slovakia, one in Brazil. And given their recent success in getting Victor Boot back, it may well be that that was on the basis of a, essentially, again, a hostage-taking of the basketball player Brittany Griner. It may well be that they decided, ah, oh, this works really rather well. And, of course, there's also a belief that this may well have a rather chilling effect on further journalism. Because this is the thing. I mean, there are those journalists who are still in Russia, Western journalists who are still in Russia, who, look, I hesitate to say that they're not really journalists, but they're certainly not going out of their way to do anything particularly investigative. They file based on the same kind of news as is available to everyone else, perhaps with a little bit of vox pop from the streets, but all very undemanding and thus very unthreatening stuff. So that's type number one. Then there's type number two, and I think you know a classic example of this would be the BBC's excellent Stephen Rosenberg, who is very cautious. He does very, very good work. But again, I think, you know, he, he's, he's very careful to balance stories which are going to be implicitly critical or indeed explicitly critical of the regime with ones that are much more, shall we say, apolitical or, or might even from time to time actually highlight stories that the regime would like to have highlighted. Not just for the sake of pleasing the regime, but just from simply reflecting the BBC's famed ethic of balance. And also, he can rely on having a certain degree of weight of gravitas because he's been around for a long time. He's a well-known figure. I mean, this is a guy, after all, who had that truly brilliant interview with Alexander Lukashenko. So that's type number two, who are, I would say, are proper journalists, but are cautious and have a certain degree of protection because of their standing. And then there's type number three, people like Evan, who absolutely want to go out there and do the job of a journalist, which is going to mean going to all sorts of places and asking all sorts of questions of all sorts of interlocutors. Now, these are precisely the people whom the state, I wouldn't necessarily say fears most, but certainly is most irritated by. And by going to Yekaterinburg, a city in which the FSB, the local FSB, has something of a reputation for being particularly willing and able to see spies and subversives in, in every direction. You know, that clearly, I think, was, was a particular problem. Now, again, I should stop and note that this, this, this is not about victim blaming. I'm not saying, well, what did he expect? But nonetheless, you know, the, the point is that it's actually very, very difficult increasingly to go and do a proper journalist's job in Russia. Because what's striking is this, that... We really have seen, I would suggest, a shift in attitudes, which actually relates to the next uh, segment on Nikolai Patrushev. A shift in attitudes away from a desire to try and spin Russia's case as positively as possible, which I think, you know, up to February of last year and the invasion, I think there, there was still quite a strong desire that they could actually reach out and get their own views across in the mainstream Western media. To a sense now that that's impossible. Now, I would suggest it's impossible because there's a limit to how much lipstick you can slather on that particular pig. 
they presumably think it's impossible because, you know, as we all know, all Western media outlets take their orders from their governments. But whatever the reason, I don't think they care. And frankly, if they scare every single Western journalist out of Russia, I really don't think that that's going to bother them in the slightest. Again, there is this willful North Koreanization at work. So for someone like, like Evan Gershkovich, on the one hand, he's doing something that the Kremlin finds intrinsically irritating. Secondly, the Kremlin is looking for more hostage fodder. And thirdly, it doesn't really care about the potential downsides. So I think you know what this really demonstrates is actually, again, as I said, this, this, this willful and almost deliberate isolation of Russia. It is, in this respect, abdicating, seceding from the outside world. But a last point I'd want to make. Look, I totally understand, and I think it's admirable, the way that Western journalists have come together to ensure that, that Evans' case is, is, is pressed, that the lies being said about him as a spy, because I really see, I've seen no evidence at all that there's any, any kind of intelligence connection there, um, but that those lies are challenged and, and undermined, and that he remains in the eye, not of the public, the public in this context doesn't really matter, but that governments are aware of his of his plight and certainly could keep up the pressure. But I would say that there are a lot of Russian journalists languishing in prison on charges just as, if not even more, ridiculous than those that face Evan. Now, the odds are that Evan will, in a few months' time, be on trial. He will be duly found to be a spy. And at that point, the bargaining over a swap will start. It's quite noteworthy that D D Deputy Foreign Minister Lyabkov made a point of saying it's too early to be talking about a swap, which is pretty much the best way of saying, hey, we want to be talking about a swap, as one could imagine. And in due course, after a no doubt exceedingly unpleasant experience, in due course he will be dutifully exchanged. No one's going to be exchanging for those Russian journalists. So let's just keep that in, in mind. Um, again, not in any way to undermine Evan Gershkovich's plight, but that we also have to be thinking about the Russians, the very brave Russians who don't have the protection of a foreign passport and who have been doing the work, even though not just for months, but for years they have been under increasing pressure. I mean, I am regularly amazed at the capacity of people to start working within NGOs, to become investigative journalists. Remember, for much of the time since 1991, the fatality rate for Russian investigative journalists is greater than the fatality rate for globally for war correspondents. You know, and yet people keep doing it. That kind of bloody-minded commitment to actually doing your job needs to be celebrated and needs to be recognised. And in this respect, I think that you know, we, we can do both. We can keep up the pressure about Evan Gershkovich, but we can also recognise the other people who, who also definitely deserve our attention. OK, I will just now give me a moment to step off my soapbox and I will talk about my number one guy, well, kind of, not because I like him, but because, yes, I am fascinated by him and what he tells us about what's happening within the system. Nikolai Platonovich Patrushev.
Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, and in many ways, Putin's national security advisor and grand vizier, has given another one of his interviews for Rasiskaya Gazeta under the splendid headline, Have They Completely Lost Their Fear? Which is something of a, a masterclass in the current official line that comes from the Kremlin. But actually, it goes rather further, I would suggest, than the official line has in the past, and that indeed Patrushev himself has in the past. There's a part of me that, uh, tongue-in-cheek admittedly, wonders if uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the, the notional deputy chair of the Security Council, is beginning to rub off on him, because there is a certain, what do I want to say, unhinged quality to some of this interview. So let me go through um, and, and, and bring up some, some of the sort of the greatest hits and the, the new breakout uh, lines from, from this interview. And I'll leave a link for those of you who either can read Russian or don't mind running a Russian page through Google Translate in the program notes. Now, the, the central theme really can be encapsulated by, by, by one of his sort of lines right at the beginning of the interview in which he talks about, because it, the, the hook of this is the United States that had its summit for democracy, which I have to say is a bit of an easy target for the Russians. But anyway, what he says is, hypocritically speaking about freedom of choice, the United States, which has appointed itself the main dictator of the world, I quite like the idea of the main dictator, as if there's a little hierarchy of dictators of the world. Anyway, the main dictator of the world will in fact simply mock countries where sovereignty and democracy are violated by them. Which, of course, you know, what he's talking about is, is, is Russia. But so we have, have this central theme, which again goes back to the, the usual line about an America that is determined to impose its hegemony over the rest of the world. And look, to a degree, I get that. In the sense that, look, all countries seek to basically, you know, advance their own interests and they use whatever the instruments at their disposal. And America has a hell of a lot of those interests and also a hell of a lot of those instruments. But what was, to me, more interesting was when actually he turns his gaze onto his perspective, or the perspective he wants to put out, but frankly I think it is his perspective, on what's actually happening inside the United States. What does he say? Well, this is a quote, Democracy for them is just a beautiful facade of the state system which is designed to hide their disregard for the rights of ordinary Americans. And I'm, I'm sure that most Americans will be deeply satisfied and reassured even to know that, that Patrushev is, is looking out, out for their interests. He continues, The political process has turned into a clash of corporations that place their people in key positions in government. They also shape foreign policy, seek to maintain their international dominance, create hotbeds of tension around the world for their billions in earnings on various contracts, and the imaginary transparency which they themselves control. Now, look, we are not 
in a first-year student's bedsit as they talk about the world which they, the elites, whoever, control. Um, but this notion that American democracy, indeed Western democracy as a whole, is nothing more than a facade, a sham, with everything being organised by the powers that be behind the scenes. I mean, look, this is, this is a line which we've heard from so many different sources and so many different times. It, it goes back to Soviet propaganda, to be perfectly honest, and no, no doubt which he was inculcated during his childhood and early career. But by now, remember, this is, as I say, in effect, the National Security Advisor of the Russian Federation. This is a man who gets to paint a picture of the outside world for Vladimir Putin. And he's basically saying that, look, this is not actually in any way democracy. It's just the you know, big business, big institutions and the elites that run everything. Now, I remember hearing before the election of Donald Trump, a line from a senior staffer within the Russian foreign ministry who said flat out the American elites will not elect a Trump. He was certain that basically that they, they could decide what would happen. Well, it didn't work out that way. Trump got elected. And in fact, the Russians, for all that they had implicitly supported Trump, not because they were supporting Trump, but just simply because they were trying to cause trouble, they got caught out by that. And frankly, they, they didn't have a pretty good time with, with, with Trump as president. But still then, they, there's still this angle that basically says, look, it's all manipulated from the outside. I mean, at best, this is banal. At worst, it is dangerously mistaken, dangerously, foolishly mistaken. And as I said, if this is what Putin is being told, if he's being told that the people who are, in, are locked in a political, economic, social, cultural, legal war with Russia are just nothing more than the tools of big business, and that therefore somehow you can actually rule out broader popular processes and the like, well, I, I find that deeply worrying. Because, again, very much he frames the situation as being one of a war between a du duplicitous, conniving and manipulative NATO, NATO being more or less a synonym for the West, which made one big military camp out of Ukraine, and is trying to prolong this military confrontation as long as possible. Why? One might ask. Because they do not hide their main goal. The defeat of Russia on the battlefield, which, in fairness, yes, that is the aim, and its further dismemberment. Now, again, I think that's very telling. In fact, certainly if you look at the United States and the UK and Germany and France, there may be other countries which have other views. But in terms of the main players in the West, I think there's no question at all that actually the idea of the Russian Federation breaking apart is one that they think is A, exceedingly unlikely, and B, exceedingly unwanted. Look, if Russia breaks apart, I mean, what, that is a recipe for chaos. And chaos in a nuclear power is, is never wanted. But still, the fact that Patrushev is pushing this line, which, again, is an, an attempt to make this an existential struggle for Russia, makes me wonder, does he really believe that? And I have to say, I, I think it's quite likely he does. Especially because he comes back, he, later on he says, let me remind you that specific measures to destroy the USSR were approved 75 years ago by the well-known directive of the US National Security Council, Objectives for Russia. Well, OK, what is he talking about here? This, what is this well-known directive, which no doubt is on the lips of everybody? Well, in 1948, 
the National Security Council produced this uh, document, U.S. Objectives with Respect to the USSR to Counter Soviet Threats to U.S. Security. Now, it's quite an interesting document because it very much it frames the threat um, not so much in, in military terms. I mean, it does talk about the fact that you know at a certain point the USSR w- would be able to bombard the American mainland nu- in a nuclear with nuclear weapons, and it also talks about the fact that actually in a matter of months it likely could occupy continental Europe. But it also recognises the degree to which this would be an extraordinary logistical overstretch and so forth, and it actually says that it does not think it is likely that this is a Soviet objective. Instead, it really sees the challenge as coming from Russian political warfare, attempts to undermine and divide the West, which is all really tremendously familiar. We've heard it all before because it was true then and it's true now. But let's focus on the objectives, because he's saying that basically the goal was to dismember the USSR. Well, if one looks the objectives, which are in section 19, again, I'll leave... Um, a link to the the document. 19a, to reduce the power of the influence of the USSR to limits which no no longer constitute a threat to the peace, national independence and stability of the world family of nations, which is simply about degrading risk rather than anything else, and b, to bring about a basic change in the conduct of international relations by the government in power in Russia to conform with the purposes and principles set forth in the UN Charter. Now again, that's very striking because it's not about what's happening inside the Soviet Union. It's actually about how the Soviet Union behaves in relation to the outside world, which again, I would suggest is actually a very moderate document, I mean, especially given that the, you know, the time, 1948, this is really the sort of, while the, the Cold War is, is spooling up. So, section 20, We should endeavour to achieve our general objectives by methods short of war through the pursuit of the following aims. And then there's a sort of a a whole list of attempts to, you know, as he puts, to encourage and promote the gradual retraction of undue Russian power. This is not a particularly neatly uh, well-written phrase. And influence from the present perimeter areas around traditional Russian boundaries and the emergence of the satellite countries as entities independent of the USSR. Now that, yes, now that does speak to a proposed kind of dismembering, but again, not a dismembering of Russia. It is about the Soviet Union. It is about countries like Armenia, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, whatever. And more broadly, it's to, it goes on to encourage the development among the Russian peoples of attitudes which may help to modify current Soviet behaviour and permit a revival of the national life of groups evidencing the ability and determination to achieve and maintain national independence. Now, again, I think this is, this is really quite important. This was, in many ways, a document that actually did, in its own way, outline means to severely limit and maybe even break apart the Soviet Union. Granted. Point one, please do not try and tell me that the Soviet Union did not have exceedingly aggressive and indeed um, disruptive goals towards other countries as well. Point two, again, what was really quite striking is that the basic point is actually, you know, the driver of this whole process 
was to be about reducing the Soviet capacity to harm the United States and the world community as a whole. Again, it is very much about resistance. It is about containment. It is not about attack. Now, again, maybe this is just basically Patrushev's rhetoric. But I can't help but, but feel that after a certain point, you know, if you espouse the same position and uh, indeed advance the, the, the lines of your position all the more, eventually you start to fall into it. Because this, in his view, is absolutely an era of semi-colonial Cold War struggle. And time and time again, what emerges from this speech is this notion, sorry, this interview, is this notion that essentially the other countries, the other countries which are, shall we say, involved in this struggle, do not have agency. They are just simply the pawns of the United States or the targets of its aggressive manipulation. I mean, he talks, for example, about what's going on in Japan. Now, Japan is increasingly worried about the strategic context in which it finds itself, which is not just about Russia, it's also about China. And yes, it is reversing a lot of its previous anti-militarist policies, which, well, let's be honest, anti-militarist after a certain point was no longer about proving that we are no longer the imperial Japan of World War II, but also about, hey, why don't we just spend money on our economy and hide under the American military umbrella, which is in many ways the same as, as Germany did for, for so long. And now the Japanese are spending more money on defence, they're changing, they're, they're not quite so defensive in their military exercises and such like. How does Patrushev interpret this? Washington has pushed Tokyo to a new militarization. And later on, he says, in addition to arming Japan, Washington is trying to revive the spirit of Japanese militarism. Now, there is absolutely no evidence that it wants a militaristic Japan. Quite the opposite. Nor is it actually any evidence that America is necessarily pushing this. I mean, it is supportive of Japan's uh, in, in a new policy. It is perfectly willing to sell Japan all the various new weapons and particularly cruise missiles that it wants, but this can't be the way it is as far as Patrushev is concerned. It has to be that somehow Japan is being shaped by the United States. Or, again, as Patrushev talks about it, the Anglo-Saxons. Now, I'm faintly um, encouraged by that term Anglo-Saxons only in one way. I'm encouraged that it means that he seems, still seems to think that, that, that the Britain is not simply a cat's paw of the United States. It is part of this, this sinister manipulative alliance. We still count. But anyway, what else are we Anglo-Saxons doing? Well, he talks about the fact that uh, you know Western pharmaceuticals, Western uh, medicines, are are not coming to Russia, which is which is depressingly true. Medicines are exempt from sanctions, but all the disruption caused to supply chains and the way in ways in which you could try and transfer money and pay for things are such that actually there has been a rather depressing sort of side effect that medicines are not available in in Russia on anything like a necessary scale. And a lot of Russians, frankly, are, are blaming us. But they're not necessarily blaming us in the terms that Patrushev goes, because as, as usual, he has to take this just a bit further. He has to draw on parallels with Nazi Germany. And 
basically make the point that all these drug companies, which the West is forcing to not sell their medicines to Russia, they were also in many cases involved in the development of poison gas and gas chambers and such like. Come on, Patrushev. Are you really so concerned to demonstrate the validity of Godwin's law, which, if you don't know what it is, was uh, is about the internet, and it states that as discussion on the internet grows longer, the likelihood of a person being compared to Hitler or another Nazi increases. And it's not just that, it's also that, frankly, most of these comparisons are deeply, deeply stupid. But it doesn't matter, because from his point of view, he's trying to roll everything together. All aspects of history, all aspects of politics, all have to be put into this framework of a massive, multi-generational, multinational conspiracy against Russia. He has this talk about a, a Western, the Western international opposed our country more than once, either under the banners of the Poles and Swedes, then with Napoleonic eagles, under the British flag or under the Nazi swastika. The result is the same. All attempts to crush Russia are futile. Well, look, apart from the fact that Russia actually often loses its wars, OK, not against Napoleon and not against the Nazis, but against Poles, against Swedes, and indeed against the, the British. Well, apart from that point, again, to try and roll all this together you know, begins to become quite ridiculous. And in some ways, it rhetorically traps him. It rhetorically traps him in that you know, if you have created this sense that you are set up against the whole world, in effect, then you have, in effect, also to be able to claim that Russia is going to beat the whole world, unless you want your readers to be filled with despair and despondency. But this is what we're offered. And again, this is the last thing that I want to dwell on, because if this is what... Patrushev is telling Putin, if this reflects the tenor of, of his secret briefings, then it is not only deeply worrying, it is also helps explain why Putin genuinely seems to feel that time is on his side and that he has no need to look for any kind of exit strategy from Ukraine. Why? Well, first of all, he is absolutely blunt about this. The collapse of the European Union is not far off. As far as he's concerned, there's no real question or doubt about that. You know, the, the, the decadence, the division, and the fact that the United States is trying to actually break it up for its own economic and political purposes all ensure that the European Union will collapse. Because after all, as we all know, the Americans hate Europe. Even during the Cold War, the Pentagon, at the slightest danger from the USSR, was ready to turn Europe into a radioactive desert. Now, why I wanted to dwell on that line is that's really the angle that was presented in the so-called Holocaust Papers, which surfaced in 1980 and purported to be America's top-secret battle plans for what would it do in the case of war with the Soviet Union, and basically said that, yes, absolutely, they, they would indeed nuke all of Europe until it would glow gently in the dark. Of course, this actually was a really quite sophisticated and carefully developed hoax that was put out by the KGB precisely in the, to 
generate public resistance, anti-American feeling in the West, and in particular to support the rising anti-nuclear movement at the time, which was in any case already agitating because of the imminent arise, arrival of cruise missiles and Pershing II missiles into bases in, in the UK and, and elsewhere. So this is Patrushev, ex-KGB officer, who either believes what was actually KGB propaganda, fake news, to use the current vernacular, or else is still trying to basically recycle what, let me be honest, did not work in the 1980s, a time that was vastly more propitious for this kind of propaganda. Anyway, so as far as he's concerned, the Americans hate the Europeans, the European Union is ready to collapse. And what about the United States? Well, it looks like the United States is also about to break apart. I mean, he, he talks about the original division between North and South and says that no one can exclude that the South of the United States will move towards Mexico. Because after all, you know, as we all know, the opinions of people in southern United States is, why can't our country be more like Mexico? I mean, this is why Mexico maybe is, should even build a wall to prevent all these huge numbers of illegal immigrants flocking south from the United States into the warm and welcoming bosom of the Mexican economy. But nonetheless, you know, as far as he's concerned, that, that's what's likely, that somehow you know, the, the south will break away from the north and more broadly, that this country will fall apart. Why? Well, because the antagonism between Republicans and Democrats is only getting worse. Contradictions are growing between various financial structures and transnational corporations that care only about their capitalization and not about the well-being of America. The US elites, who imagine themselves to be untouchable, have never associated themselves with the American people. And as a result, well... Ordinary citizens will not lift a finger for the sake of preserving the integrity of America, realising that the authorities don't need them, implicitly don't care for them. So without knowing what they're doing, the US authorities are destroying themselves step by step. And he has a view that there'll be some kind of massive financial crisis, that this, this, this system will, will basically fall apart. And he adds that, that Russia, which of course is a historical defender of the sovereignty and statehood of any peoples who turn to her for help, because she saved the United States at least twice during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And in fairness, yes, Russia did, for its own reasons, support the United, well, the, the rebels against the, the hated British in the War of Independence and the North against the South. But the actual impact of any such support is deeply, deeply questionable. But this time, he says, I believe helping the United States to maintain its integrity is inappropriate. So I'm terribly sorry, United States, but this time Russia is not going to save you and you're going to fall apart. Now, look, I, I, I dwell on this in part just simply because I find Patrushev's um, increasingly bizarre position, um, I wouldn't say entertaining, but let's say compelling. But yes, I really want to stress this point, though, that this is much, much more extreme, even than the stuff we've had in the past. I mean, Patrushev has a tendency to, to be a pretty extremist and hawkish figure, but nonetheless, this, this, is, this is more than the, the usual. And I cannot help but suspect 
that this gives us some sense. Admittedly, you know, obviously in a very different kind of take because this is a public interview rather than a, a private briefing. But nonetheless, I, I think this must reflect the views that he is conveying to Putin because we, we're seeing similar talking points coming from Putin and those other people who, who channel Putin. And Patrushev, sometimes he channels Putin, but sometimes, frankly, Putin is channeling him. And this notion that any day now, any day, the West will collapse, it's obviously a very encouraging one for Putin and his clique. And it also is a recipe for policy inertia. You have nothing else really that you could offer beyond surrender, which is politically unacceptable, and massive escalation, which is politically dangerous. Well, you now have a rationale for just basically business as usual, because all you have to do is just hold on, just hold on. Any day now, just over the horizon, victory is coming as the West falls apart and its will and capacity to support Ukraine falls apart with it. So this is one of the many reasons why, at the moment, I think the Russians are just digging in. They will do everything they can to hold on. We will see if they can resist the impending, probably, probably early summer, Ukrainian offensive. But essentially, their whole policy is just entrench and wait. And finally, and most briefly, I just want to actually bring people's attention to a report that I and my collaborator, and indeed wife, Anna Arutunyan, put together for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. And again, I'll provide the usual link. And it's called Peace and Proliferation, the Russo-Ukrainian War and the Illegal Arms Trade. Because, well, because obviously I wrote it, so I think it's wonderful. No, but generally speaking, there's just a, a few issues which I think are worth bringing out for the discussion, because there's a lot of talk about arms proliferation out of Ukraine. And I think it's worth separating the myths from, from the facts, because in many ways, I think people talk up this problem at the moment because they are essentially opposed to sending lethal aid to the Ukrainians. Well, the key thing is this. Look, at present, there appear to be, and these figures are very tentative, but between seven and nine million legally held weapons in Ukraine, and that in also includes the Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine and up to 7 million illegally held weapons. Which does not mean they're all in the hands of gangsters or similar. It just simply means that they are unregistered ones. I mean, they could be some old World War I heirloom that still fires, or they could be something that someone picked up off the battlefield. But in one way or the other, there's at least, well, up to rather, 7 million, that, again, on both sides of the border, that we don't really have a handle on where they are. But at present, there is no evidence of any substantial outflow. Yes, there are the individual cases, a Kalashnikov here, some grenades there, and such like. But first of all, no heavy equipment, which I, I wouldn't really expect, frankly. I mean, even if you could get, get your hands on a tank, and even if you could find someone who could buy it, a tank in and of itself is pretty much useless without people who know how to repair it, the spare parts, the ammunition, all, all the rest of the stuff. So actually, I think that's, that's a bit of a red herring. But even if we go down, down to, to small arms, which is the one place where there is actually a you know, significant illicit market, at present, they're not really bleeding out because on the whole they are being used or that they may be being used. If anything, there's actually some evidence of smuggling into Ukraine as people look, look for additional weapons. But, two points. First of all, this 
even now is leading to an increase in dangerous and violent crime. I mean, in the first 11 months of 2022, for example, in Russia, crime went up by 36%, and particularly violent crime. And in Ukraine, well, there are claims that, that violent and weapons using crime almost disappeared with the invasion. I'm not, I have to say, convinced. I think to a large extent this is about non-reporting. And in fact, we actually also have seen some evidence of a distinct increase in serious crime ca carried out. This is frankly predictable and expected, not least because you, know, you, you, you have you know, traumatised soldiers, you have weapons sloshing around, you have people in extreme circumstances and situations, and you also have police agencies that are either being starved of people because of conscription, or that are busy addressing other priorities. The real issue, though, is of what happens when the war ends. And I think there's sort of a key theme is... We need to be talking about it now, but we need to be talking about this, this potential problem, and I'd stress that, potential, in measured terms. Because it's not actually about what's happening now, and it's certainly not about the heavy equipment, which is really what the West is providing. Yes, there's some small arms and so forth, but much less these days. That's not really what the Ukrainians need, and that's not what's really being sent. It is about the need to address it now, to start thinking much more seriously, because what we've seen time and time again is it's when the shooting stops that the proliferation starts. That's when you have the massive outflow of weapons. We had it, for example, with the Balkan Wars. We've had it in a whole variety of other conflicts. That is where I'm worried about. And so, you know, a large part of this report is just trying to assess where the situation is now and present... Some suggestions, uh, you know, a menu of possible options that Kyiv can be considering and, and acting on, but also its Western partners can be doing to you know, provide assistance and what they can be doing themselves. So it's not just a, something for the Ukrainians to, to deal with. And that's worth stressing because, again, I think it speaks to a much, much wider issue that we do see with Ukraine. Again, look, I'm, I'm not a Ukraine specialist, but I'm just really talking to the areas that I know about, something about. There may well be many others to which this applies, which is that the war, which obviously is the priority, but is also being used as a reason, if I was being harsh, I would say excuse, not to address some underlying issues relating to, for example, corruption relating to reform of the SBU, the Ukrainian Security Service. It's, easy, it's all very easy to say now is not the time. But actually, now is the time to be starting the process. There may be a limit to what you can do. I'm not, there's no way, for example, you could have a thoroughgoing reform of the Ukrainian security apparatus, even though arguably it needs it, in a time of war. But at least you can actually start the process. Because otherwise, if you wait until the war ends and then start thinking about, oh, I suppose we need to be doing something. By that point, it's too late. You're going to be busy in the attempt at reconstruction, at recalibrating U Ukraine's relationships with, with Russia, because there will have to be some kind of relationship, as well as the outside world, all kinds of other things. It will be too late to start then. At that point, corruption will re-entrench itself in the reconstruction project. The security apparatus will be that much harder to address because it'll have say, we won this war, the, the war on the, the secret battlefield. And likewise, the weapons will already started to flow out, likely in huge numbers. So, again, 
it's, it's always a danger because I don't want this to sound like a kind of an anti-Kiev tract by any means, not at all. And it's worth noting that the Ukrainians have indeed already begun some very serious moves to, to address this challenge. But generally speaking, yes, we need to focus on the war, but not to the exclusion of what happens after the war. And I know I bang on a lot about how we need to be thinking about how we interact with a post-war, but also ideally post-Putin Russia, and that we need to be thinking and working about that now. But likewise, it also, in my opinion, applies to Ukraine. Anyway, the report is freely available as a PDF on the Global Initiative site, and we, you know, both Anna and I hope that it's useful, not least in stimulating a conversation about where we go from here. But where I go from here is to end this podcast. I had said this was going to be a short episode. Clearly, I do love the sound of my own voice. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. (laughs) 